This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Um, so I, <laughs> I am so thrilled that we're able to do this. Um, and I want to start by thanking Paulette Light, my sister-in-law, um, who, yeah, um, who's responsible for so many good things in the world and in my life. Um, and especially for this, because, um, we have made a commitment as a community, um, to share in the honoring of, um, of all of those folks who are chosen to receive the Charles Bronfman prize. Um, and Paulette and her team have done incredible work over the last couple of years and will hopefully for many years to come, um, to, to work, to, understand the landscape of where, um, the good, where the good work is happening across the world, and then to lift up the work of the people who are really dedicated to, to driving that work forward. Um, and so I'm grateful to you, um, Paulette, not only for what you do, but for bringing Ikar into the work, um, along with Ellen and Andrew, who are beloved Ikar members. Um, this, the Charles Bronfman Prize was founded uh, several years ago, actually 2004, Okay, it was founded in 2004 to celebrate Charles Bronfman's 70th birthday at the time. Many of you know uh, Charles's work. Um, he's been an extraordinary lifelong philanthropist who's funded some really important work in the Jewish world. Um, and his kids, Ellen Bronfman-Houtman and Stephen Bronfman, um, wanted to honor their father along with their spouses, Andrew and Claudine. Um, and every year since, they have uh, they've been identifying from nominations all around the world who the extraordinary folks are that are doing this work. So we're very happy to, um, along with Ellen and Stephen and Andrew and Claudine and Paulette, to help uh, lift up the work of Yotam Pulitzer. So um, and Israel So I'm going to just tell you very a very brief bio of Yotam, a little bit um, about the work of Israel and then I'm really going to turn it over to you. We'll be in conversation a little bit, and then we'd love to hear from all of you, um, questions, thoughts, uh, what's on your mind about this work in this critical moment. So, um, so Israel since the year 2001, has been responding to crises all around the world in 60 countries, um, reaching more than 5 million people who've been affected by uh, by a variety of crises, both climate-related and also human-made disasters. In the last couple of years, under Yotam's leadership, um, Israel has redefined its mission and its theory of change, which I'm going to ask you about, um, to ensure sustainability and long-lasting impact. Many of us know that often the, um, the best-intentioned efforts end up having um, reverberative consequences that were unintended. And so it's really important in this work and in this field um, to make sure that we're really thinking about what the theory of change is, and we'll, we'll discuss that. I'm really e eager to hear your take on this. Um, Israel, Israel um, sees crises and disasters as opportunities not only for initial relief and life-saving, but also as opportunities to provide long-term recovery and capacity strength strengthening 
happening that will help communities that have been hardest hit really um, regain their resiliency and equip them with the tools um, to, to, to step into the future. And they've been working all around the world, as I said, um, and we're especially interested as this week marks the one-year anniversary from Putin's three-day war in Ukraine, um, which has now cost so many lives over the course of the last year and just caused so much devastation across Ukraine, um, to hear about your work with Ukrainian refugees and especially after the just devastating earthquakes in uh, in Turkey and in Syria, to hear about Israel's work um, in in response to those crises and others. So I'm particularly grateful to you um, for being with us in this moment when there's so much upheaval around the world, and you can really bring us uh, a, a perspective of some of the incredible work that's going on. So Yotam, thank you for being with us. Mazal Tov on winning this incredible prize, um, and. I would, I would love um, if you can share with us um, some of your story, both personally and the work of Israel. Um, we and I will just uh, say very briefly that also in this room are are a number of Ikar people who've actually dedicated significant portions of their um, of their own lives and careers to working with refugees, and some with Israel specifically, and some with other agencies. So this is a community both of learners and doers, and so it's particularly inspiring and wonderful for us to get to learn from you in this way. So thank you thank and welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Um, it's so um, heartwarming to be here. I was just with the, with the kids upstairs, um, and I was so inspired by them. One of them started to explain to me about climate change, stuff that I had no idea about. So I go, wow, wow. there's a, a lot of nachas. Um, so uh, first of all, it, it, it really does feel like home because we, we really have great, great friends in this beautiful community. Haley, who's here, who worked with Israel for two years, ran our program in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria and in Dominica, which is a tiny island in the Caribbean that was devastated by a hurricane. Um, Rachel, who is uh, from our team in LA. Um, Adam, who runs Team Rubicon, which who founded Team Rubicon, one of our best partner organizations. Of course, Paulette, who became my, uh, I don't want to say Jewish mother, because you're not old as my mother, but like... Um, big sister, Jewish big, big sister. Jewish big sister. But taking care of me better than my mom. Uh, but actually, speaking about my mom, I do want to recognize um, another crisis that is happening in a place that's very close to all of our hearts, uh, Israel. And um, why I'm mentioning my mom is because just before I stepped into the shul, I got a text message from her. Um, in the protest that is happening right now, right now, as we speak in Israel, uh, at this very moment. Um, so I want to recognize that because that's a whole different crisis that maybe is a little bit bigger than Israel. But I do think we, um, as progressive Israelis who care deeply about building bridges and supporting everyone, Jews and non-Jews, uh, we have a role to play there too. Yes. Um, so I, I really want to recognize that. And then yesterday... And I'm happy to talk about more about the situation in Israel later if people want to hear. Um, Israel, by the way, it's very important to clarify, we're a non-governmental and non-political organization. We, do, we are very, very proud of our Israeli identity. Uh, we do see our role to bring expertise and, and the real values of the Israeli civil society to the world's most vulnerable communities. Um, yesterday was the one-year um, mark for the Russian invasion to Ukraine. Um, we are, again, this is a, a total man-made disaster. Um, it's a political disaster. But we're focusing on the humanitarian needs. 
Unfortunately, what we're seeing in Ukraine, and we've seen this in many other crises around the world, uh, but in Ukraine it was extreme. Um, this, um, I call it the aid circus, cynically. It's this um, crisis that are happening, we're seeing it now in Turkey, but in Ukraine, the whole world was sending their grandmother socks, mm-hmm. which is very nice, but not super helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually this attention that these crises get is one week, two weeks, mm-hmm. one month, and then people move on to the next tweet. Um, so at Israel, and you mentioned that um, we changed our, our, the way we work because we were always about immediate response and we're always sending our team within the first 72 hours. Mm-hmm. And we arrived to Ukraine a day after uh, the war started and we arrived to Turkey 36 hours after the earthquake. Um, but even more important, our teams of more than 300 people right now are still on the ground in Ukraine, in Moldova and Romania, and in 16 other countries mm-hmm. uh, where we operate. So for me personally, this is the more important part, not just being thirst on the ground, but being kind of the last one to leave. So this mm-hmm. notion of first in and last out. Um, so that's Israel. Um, but my, my story uh, and how I got involved, I grew up in a tiny moshav in the north part of Israel, um, near Carmiel and Tzfat, if people know. Beautiful place. My dad is a social worker. My mom is a therapist. Um, I didn't think I'll get involved in this crazy humanitarian crisis around the world. Uh, but then before my, uh, my IDF service, I did um, something that about 10,000 Israelis do every year, and I don't think enough people here know about it. It's called Shnat Shirut. It's, it's a gap year um, where people are basically saying, well, two or three years in the army is not enough. We'll take an extra year. Um, and I did, uh, I did my gap year um, working with Ethiopian um, Jews who were struggling um, from many, many challenges. Uh, I specifically worked with uh, kids who were suffering from domestic violence. At the age of 18, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, But I learned so much from this experience. And I think I really developed my passion for not only um, service, but um, working with people from other culture. Mm. So I I call what I do, if people really ask me, like, what do you do? I said, it's active anthropology. So, because I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated by people and cultures and languages. I speak a lot of random languages. Some of them are not that useful, like Nepalese and Japanese. Um, but, uh, but really, that's where I developed my passion. And then after my, um, even in my army service, I did something quite unique. Um, I was a combatant for some part of my service. And then second part, I initiated a project to support um, Bedouin youth in the Negev. Um, who are also living in unrecognized villages in a really challenging um, environment. And, and I learned Arabic, uh, some Arabic, and, um, and, and that, was, that was an amazing experience. And, and then I won an award from the army about it. So they kind of tried to, to, take, uh, <laughs> to take credit for, uh, for my project, but, but it's okay, um, <laughs> as long as they let me do it. Um, and, then, and then after my military service, like every Israeli, I followed the Hummus Trail. And um, Hummus Trail, for those of you who are not familiar with the term, is, is about 50,000 Israelis who backpack after the army um, to either um, South America or um, Southeast Asia. 
And um, the ones who really don't have money like me are going to India because it was the cheapest place. So I went to India. And the reason it's called the Hummus Trail is because the local Indian started to make hummus for the thousands of Israelis that are coming. And it's not the best hummus. It's very, like, has a curryish taste. So I don't recommend the Indian hummus. But um, I found myself, after six months of backpacking in Nepal and trekking the Himalayas, and, and as I got um, off the mountain, I, I saw an ad that invited backpackers to volunteer with street children. I thought, you know, that sounds cool. I'll do it for two weeks. And I ended up staying there for three and a half years. Wow. Um, working with street children in Nepal. Um, as part of an organization actually called Tevel Betzedek. It's a small organization that was started by a rabbi in LA called Micha Odenheimer, um, who was bringing Jews and Israelis for, to do global service work. Um, I, I, I learned Nepalese, which is a very useful language, as you know. I didn't think it would be useful, but it proved to be really useful when I went back to Nepal a couple of years later after the earthquake they had. Um, so anyway, after three and a half years, I was ready to start my life. I went back to Israel. And then f- literally a week after I went back to Israel, the tsunami in Fukushima happened. Mm. And I was invited by uh, the person who, who was running Israel. Israel was a tiny organization at the time. It was just volunteers. It was just one staff member. Talking about March 2011. 12 years ago, he invited me to lead a relief mission to Japan. And I said, you know, why not? I always loved sushi. So I'll go, I'll go to Japan. Um, interestingly enough, in Japan, they really didn't need the support, the, the physical support. Uh, but we went and we found a kindergarten where eight children died mm. during the tsunami. And they didn't have any kind of emotional support for the kids, for the parents, um, for, the, for the teachers. Um, so we did a very simple art therapy activity that, you know, was used um, for kids in Sterot and in Kirach Mona and other places. And, you know, the Japanese children, like any children, they were immediately kind of reacting and, and, and using art. And they, they painted the tsunami and they painted their homes that was washed away. And when we thought, when we saw it, we thought, OK, that's a natural reaction for an abnormal situation. But the Japanese teachers were shocked told us it's the first time the kids are actually expressing themselves regarding their trauma. Mm. And then we realized that because of our challenges in Israel, because of the trauma of the conflict and the Holocaust, and like everyone in Israel is one way or the other traumatized. Um, We we always joke, we don't joke, it's the truth, that every therapist goes to therapy in Israel. Um, and I have two parents. One is a social worker. One is a therapist. So I know they also need therapy. <laughs> no, no, they're the best. Um, and um, yeah, so 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 we realized there's a there's a huge gap and there's a huge opportunity to to take this know-how from Israel and to support children who are traumatized around the world. And, and this is Israel is one of the few organizations that really focuses on mental health and psychological support. Um, and we started in Japan, but then we we worked doing it with Syrian refugees and with survivors of other disasters. So anyway, I can continue forever about my bio. I was I was running our program in the Ebola, which was terrifying. Mm. Um, it, it's always good when when we need when I need some perspective about COVID. Yeah. Because yeah. when I went to Sierra Leone in uh, September 2014, mm. the survival rate was 50 percent. Oh, my God. And, and every night, I remember, every night I used to wake up full of sweat, which is one of the symptoms of Ebola. 
And I was like 100% sure that I had Ebola. I measured my temperature and I said, well, not yet. Um, so that was Ebola. And then I went to Nepal after the earthquake in 2015. And uh, we found the last survivor of the earthquake, which was, mm. I know they just found people in Turkey after two weeks. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. That's, um, I, I, we found a survivor in Nepal after six days. We mm. pulled out 21 uh, dead bodies and the 22nd person was alive. Oh my God. Um, and somehow, because I spoke the language, I was able to communicate with her under the rubbles, and uh, it was quite, quite dramatic. Um, but I, I couldn't believe that there's people who can survive for two weeks. That's like a, a miracle that... Um... So as in Nepal, I was in, in Greece uh, supporting Syrian refugees, which was something that I talked about when I was here last time when you hosted me. I think it was in 2016. Um, Greece was... Um, heartbreaking on so many levels but it was also an incredible opportunity to build bridges we had have this story that i always share of um of a boat that capsized full of refugees and we pulled out um that day we were close so we were able to pull everyone out and i was carrying this very tiny sweet syrian girl who's probably four or five years old she was shivering and shaking my hands and, and i handed her over to our arab israeli doctor who was um, leading our medical team. He treated her, he stabilized her. And then her father, who was an engineer from Damascus, a very educated guy, he told me, my worst enemy became my biggest supporter. And the people who are supposed to protect me back home in Syria are chasing me away. To me, it was the first time that I realized this opportunity that we have through these terrible, terrible tragedies to to build bridges and, t- and change people's perspective. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'll, I'll stop here because I can continue forever and talk about an operation we had in Afghanistan recently, which was very dramatic, but yeah. Thank you, this is incredible. So first, let me just say for the people who are back here, if anyone's able to move, feel, please feel free to come in and you can grab a, we can, we can bring a couple chairs up here just so that if other folks come to the door as they finish lunch, they'll be able to come in and hear. So thank you. Just don't be shy about moving through the room. Yeah, be, um, be Israelis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. Great. That's going to be really helpful. Thank you. Okay. Um, so thank you for sharing this. Um, I want to, I want to bring us back to the early days, um, of our, of, of ICAR when we were going to build an early childhood center here in Los Angeles. And Melissa and I had both read, um, Nick Kristoff's book, Half the Sky, that he wrote with Cheryl, Cheryl Wu, Sherilyn Wu. Mm-hmm. Right, his wife, and um, and we just realized that in LA, um, a school was really it was a luxury. There were other preschools, um, frankly, that our kids could go to if we didn't build the school. But in some parts of the world, literacy is one of the strongest determinants for survival. And so we realized if as we build the school here, we need to build a school somewhere out in the world as well in a developing country. And we started to do some research um, and we made matrices and, you know, trying to identify. And some of you were involved in this early thought um, exercise, like, where should we go? And it was just devastating because the need is just massive and like massive scale. And there's so many countries, there's so many communities, there's so many individuals. So what is your strategy in a world that is truly suffering in devastating proportions from natural disasters and human-made, often man-made disasters, um, to try to figure out, how do you triage 
the crises of our time to figure out where you can be most effective in making change and focusing your limited resources and energy? So, um, obviously, it's a huge challenge, but in one word, it's, it's really all about partnerships. We really can't do anything ourselves. So, when we identify good partners, and good partners could be local NGO, it could be a local mosque, it could be a local church, it could be a local Jewish community, it could be the first lady of Ukraine who is a close partner of ours, we work with her very closely. Um, people who are already there, they know um, the local culture, they know the language, they know the needs, and they could also take over when we're leaving, because we're staying in average five to seven years in a crisis, which is much longer than most of the organizations, but we're not there forever, we're guests. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is to build some kind of structure that could stay. Now, when you talk about um, early childhoods, there, there's a model that we're doing around the world and um, it's called child-friendly space. And it really changes, we, we, we run maybe now 20, 20 to 30 child-friendly spaces around the world mm -hmm. in the 16 countries where we operate. Um, and when you think about it, you have to kind of adjust it to the local situation. So in many cases, it will be a big tent. That's what we're running now in Turkey. Um, so it's a tent that we turn into a happy place for kids. And there is education programs there, but more than the education, it's the protection, mm. the child, the basic safe space um, for children. In Ukraine, we operated 12 of these child-friendly spaces, not only for the kids, but for their mothers. One of the most devastating parts uh, in Ukraine was that the families were separated. The men had to stay behind, and the women and children left, either internally displaced or in the neighboring countries. Um, so creating these safe spaces for women and children where the children can be children, the mothers could just rest and be mothers and breastfeed and you know whatever they need. Um, it's crucial, and, and you can do a lot with very limited resources. Mm. Like these child-friendly spaces in some places, you know, we operate them on a budget of like five to 10, exactly. maybe not so friendly. Um, um, no, but really on, uh, in some places on a budget of $10,000, you can operate that for a year. Or just to give another example of that people are like from Ukraine now, we trained and we hired 60 psychologists as part of this uh, project we're doing with the First Lady. She prioritized trauma and mental health. Mm. So getting a trained psychologist in Ukraine, we, we provided additional training, but and, and paying them per month cost $500. There's their monthly salaries. Wow. This is what you pay for an hour of therapy in LA, right? Um, Seriously. So, so we also need to remind ourselves that with, with the, the resources that are here, or even in a place like Tel Aviv, yeah, for that matter, um, it really, really goes a long way when you work there. And, and most of our staff members around the world now are locals. We, we, mm. A lot of them are refugees themselves. Hmm. Um, I want to ask you about unintended consequences, which we spoke about a, lo a little bit in your as I introduced you, I remember being in, I went to Liberia with American Jewish World Service yeah. and we went to one of the stops and um, we were, we were all carrying around backpacks with lots of snacks in them. 
And um, because we were on these long bus rides yeah. and we went to one of their grantees, which was this medical center. And when we got there, all these children ran over and they were asking us, do we have food? Do we have any food? And we were told by the AJWS staff, you cannot give them anything. And we're like, please, can we give them a granola bar? You know, and they said, no, because you're creating an unintended dependency. Right. And you think you feel like a hero for a moment because you're giving a child a granola bar and the child's hungry. But then you don't come back the next day or other people come and give the children food and then exploit them in some ways. And so they said, like, you re there's a policy. AJWS at least has a very strict policy. You can't. Individuals cannot give to individuals. So how do you think about the unintended consequences of kind of the swoop in and help models? I, I know you stay for a long time, but how do you how do you map out what you need to do in order to keep it healthy and safe relationship? So so this uh, this notion, we call it. Uh, well, the extreme the extreme term for it is called disaster tourism mm -hmm. and or voluntourism. Right. We've. We've seen a lot of this. Um, we've seen a lot of this. Is this Hazel? Hazel. Elsa. She reminded me of my daughter, and she's like, I was, I was almost in tears. Sorry. I'm sorry, Hazel. Um, so cute. My God. Um, I have twins. I have twins who are three and a half years old. And uh, Paula told me that she's like, she's going to, yeah, she's the same age. I haven't seen them for a while. So, um, where was I? <laughs> Unintended consequences. Unintended yes. consequences. Oh, disaster so, yeah, tourism. disaster tourism, voluntarism, it's, it's unfortunately something that we've seen a lot. Uh, in the Ukraine, we've seen it a lot. A lot of people with a lot of good intentions going to the border, taking yeah. pictures, distributing stuff. Um, it's, it's um, I mean, I'm, we're pretty strict on that. We are now, <clears throat> we, we, we think volunteers are very important, but you have to manage them very professionally. They have to commit for a specific amount of time. They have to have mm. the right skills. I mean, the work we're doing with Adam Miller and, and uh, the Team Rubicon team is, is quite amazing with volunteers because they identified things that volunteers can do without creating harm. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of physical work. A lot of physical work where you really need strong and skilled um, manpower. So in general, about the distributing, um, even things that you don't think about, like taking pictures, mm -hmm. like coming with your mobile phone and taking pictures of these kids um, could create a lot of damage. We, in general, in our communication, on our social media, and all that, we will never show like hungry children, even though I know it still sells mm -hmm. and maybe... People will donate more money when you see that. Um, the, the, the concept of do no harm and, and the protection approach is very, very important. And there's a lot, a lot of criticism about the aid industry and mm -hmm. the humanitarian aid industry. And, and AJWS takes it very seriously. They moved from their strategy, by the way, from um, um, doing direct service. We are somewhere in between where we think... Service is very important. It's very important to actually do work on the ground, but working with local partners and with local team members is crucial. So when our team deploys to a disaster, usually within the first 72 hours, they're focusing on two things, providing immediate relief and identifying local team members that we can hire, that we can mm. train, and they can actually take the lead. Okay. Well, I want to, you spoke about taking pictures, and so let me just share what you, what you shared with, is it okay to talk about sure. this, what you shared with me when we began? Because... The flyer that talks about your 
um, you winning this prize has you wearing, I think this is you, right? Yeah. Wearing a t-shirt that you said you, ne you no longer wear. So I'm going to ask you two questions about this and then we'll open it up um, for others. But it looks a little bit like the Israeli flag on the yeah. back. And so the first question is um, something I think many of us wonder about. What happens when you, as a Jew um, and as a represent, as, as someone who's uh, Isra Israeli connected to the state of Israel, show up in some of these places where people, uh, where there's very, in some places, deep rooted anti Semitism um, and very strong uh, aversion to the idea of Zionism and Zionists? And so, how do, how do you enter those spaces? I imagine. Um, offering support, like you mentioned, with the Syrian refugees or in Turkey might have, this is certainly something that came to the fore, but have you, uh, how do you navigate your Jewishness and your Israeliness in a world that's sometimes hostile to those identities? So the honest truth is that we hardly ever experienced anything like that. Uh, and I'm surprised that we haven't experienced more of that. Um, but that's the truth. And, and even in the places where you think like with the Syrian refugees. So I think one of the reasons, first of all, we had quite a few um, Arab, Israelis, Palestinians on our team. So it was a very beautiful joint uh, Israeli-Palestinian or Jewish-Arab uh, team working together. Um, so I think that was very, you know, a great factor that helped us build bridges and helped take away some of maybe the preconceptions that people have. We were the only team that had Arabic speakers. There was a lot of American and European organizations there, but none of them spoke the local language of the refugees. Mm. So that was, that was quite remarkable. Um, in Afghanistan, we had a, a very dramatic operation that I led. Um, I was for six weeks on the Afghan border. And um, there's a story of... Um, uh, an Israeli-British journalist called Dana Harman, she wrote a story for the New York Times about the first Afghan girls robotics team. And um, she was really like a family member to them. And when the Taliban took over in August 21, um, these girls reached out to her and asked if she can rescue them. And she said, I don't know what to do. So she contacted me. I said, I have no idea what to do, but let's give it a shot. Um, and and, and it's, a, it's a long and very long story that deserves a whole different... Because uh, it, was, it was like... A, I don't know, it was a combination of James Bond, Fauda, and uh, um, I don't know what else. But um, long story short, these 205 girls, and uh, including female judges, um, scientists, um, the last Jewish woman in Afghanistan. There was a Jewish man who was problematic. It's another Jewish woman who was not problematic that we, we pulled out with her, with her 35 children and grandchildren. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was insane. But what, what I wanted to, uh, I wanted to share this story. <laughs> so I wanted to find an opportunity. Wow. But on, on your note, what was very interesting is that they didn't know that they're being rescued by Israelis until they crossed the border. Mm. They thought we were American group. Mm. And when they crossed the border and they saw this T-shirt Israel, they like, what is that? Um, so they were also positively shocked. Uh, but now every Shabbat, including yesterday, I get 205 texts from Afghan women, Shabbat Shalom. Um, and so... Um, so, so we we've seen really how um, how this becomes an opportunity to build bridges. Now, having said that, there are countries that don't have diplomatic relation with Israel um, that we still were able to operate in. But of mm. course, that's not with the government, and it's only people on our team who have other passports. Uh -huh. We we sent team to Iraq, we sent teams to uh, Bangladesh. Um, in Turkey, interestingly, even though. 
yes, there is there are diplomatic relations with Turkey and Israel. Um, there was a lot of tension before, but I just sat just a couple of days ago. I sat with a Turkish ambassador in Tel Aviv, and he was so moved by by the support for Turkey, and he told me that um, from his perspective, what Israel and Israeli organization did uh, was more than any other country. Um, so, so for him, it was also a very, um, you know, they, 70 countries send aid, but, but they really appreciated the, the Israeli civil society mm. support. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because we're non-governmental, because we're non-political, and we keep on saying that, and you mentioned the logo, so, so we decided to change our logo. We're still called Israel, but we wanted to make sure that people understand that we're not the government. And that was before this current government that we don't have to talk about. But um, but we really want to make sure that this is a people-to-people connection. We see ourselves as a representative of the Israeli civil society, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely not the government. And that helps. So let me ask you about that. And this is a little bit of a harder question. Yeah. Um, you know, I I would want to believe that, and there was a time in my life where we've th- where David and I thought very seriously about making Aliyah, and um, and I would hope to believe that if I were an Israeli citizen, that I would be doing work similar to what you're doing now. And um, and I think that part of our work as an American Jewish community is to really lift up Israeli civil society. Um, and to help amplify the voices of um, of Israelis, uh, of Israeli Jews and Palestinians who are doing great work on the ground, um, because Israel should not be defined by its worst elements, many of whom are in the government. Um, but how do you make sure that you're not part of the Hasbara machinery, like the propaganda machine of the government of the state of Israel? That you know there are these accusations that um, that there's a kind of greenwashing, a pinkwashing, a whitewashing of. Um, of the occupation of crimes of the Israeli, uh, of, the, uh, of the extremism of many of the ministers in Israel's government, because they'll be like, but look, we were in Turkey. And it, I know you don't get your funding from the government, but I, I'm certain that they use Israel as an opportunity to lift up the great work of Israelis around the world. So on one hand, I, I love that you're doing what you do. I, w- I would like to think I would be doing that work too myself as an Israeli if I were Israeli. And how do you make sure that your that your work is not being co-opted by uh, by nefarious forces who are trying to excuse their own bad behavior back on the home front um, by lifting up the model of that that we can all be proud of the people who are doing the great work out in the field? Look, I think they will continue to use not only us, not only Israel. Like people will use. There's, you know, uh, hand in hand, a beautiful network of Jewish Arab school over Israel that are being also used sometimes for these political purposes. <clears throat> I think the best answer uh, is to really focus on our work mm-hmm. and our impact. And I can tell you, and we have people here who are on our team, so they can also, the people who, who work for Israel and volunteer for Israel, they care very, very deeply about the communities they serve. Um, and I think that's what matters. I mean, the organization is called Israel because we want to build these bridges. Mm-hmm. We want to connect people to the civil society in Israel. We want to connect people here in the U.S., in the Jewish community and beyond to people who, who, who share the same values. Um, and so we can't win it all, but I think these align these shared values, these building bridges, again, not only between Jews and Muslims, between Jews and Jews, 
um, is more crucial than ever. So whether some people will use it for their purposes, yes, we can prevent all of it. Um, but I think our work speaks for itself. And we, and we will not compromise our work. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if any government will tell us you shouldn't work with Muslim refugees, I mean, that's not going to change the fact that, that, that we will continue doing that. Um, and, uh, and we continue to advocate for refugees and we continue to advocate that Israel, the society of Israel, uh, should do more. I'm optimistic because I'm seeing um, both with what's happening now uh, in the country, um, people like my mother who never protested, but also um, how people in Tel Aviv, in Ukraine, for example, all these tech people who are sitting in their cafes and love to talk about global impact, Mm -hmm. but I always ask them what it actually means, I see people are stepping in. People stepping up, people are becoming more involved, either philanthropically or with their technology or as volunteers or as protesters. So um, I always say that, like I gave a TED talk a few years ago, it's called Disaster as Opportunities. Mm -hmm. And and I I mean, that's been my life, right? I met my wife in the tsunami in Japan. So that's quite a quite an opportunity that was um, and and she's now she's now a Japanese. Um, But um, but no, but honestly, like really, um, again, I think these crises that we have now, including in Israel, could also bring opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, and I see people are waking up um, and more and more people are getting involved in our kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I guess, encouraging in a troubling times. Well, and I, I mean, I do appreciate the, I, the theory of not seeding. Zionism or Jew or Israeli to the people who like really speak to a different set of values than I think we share. And so I think that's very, that's very powerful and well said. I would love to open it up to any comments. Um, And Jeff, I'm just going to ask if everyone can just uh, speak loudly and also introduce yourselves. Uh, Oh, Melissa is going to bring you a microphone. Thank you, Melissa. Um, so just want to make sure everybody gets to know each other a little bit as we, uh, as we have this short conversation. Hi, um, was it on? Yes. Yeah, I'm, Jeff, I'm Jeff Zimmerman. I'm a social worker as well, so I'm glad you're... Um, I've also worked in crisis, crisis intervention. So so when you go to these countries immediately, yeah. are you invited? Do you go there and hope to make contact with locals? How does that work? It's a great question. I was just talking about it with uh, Adam is here. <laughs> um, so in some countries, in some crises... The government declares that it's a global humanitarian crisis, it's a, it's a massive humanitarian crisis, and they call on international aid. And then different groups go. The UN goes, Doctors Without Borders go, International Medical Corps, which is an LA-based organization, uh, goes, and Israel goes. So we're all going, and there's something called the cluster system, which is a system that's not fully functioning, but it is what it is, of all these different organizations meeting together and trying to answer the four W's, who is doing what, where, and when, mm-hmm. in order to make sure there's no gap. So in the best case scenario, the Red Cross will go and they'll build a hospital. Doctors Without Borders will go and they'll staff the hospital. And we say, okay, you have hospitals, you have doctors. We'll bring mental health specialists or we'll bring water engineers to or social workers because uh, there's a need for, for uh, psychological support. Mm-hmm. So, so that's in the best case scenario. In some cases... You're not, we are not invited and nobody is invited, not because there isn't a need, but because the government wants to show they're in control. And that's just governments around the world, they always want to show that they're in control. In these cases, 
we will still find a way in, but and it will always be for a local partner. So we will identify a local NGO. We will send a very small team to do a rapid assessment and to identify partners who are interested in the type of expertise that we're bringing. Um, so there may be cases that we will decide after the assessment that our services are not needed. If, if the need will be to build roads and build hospitals, we don't have an added value. If we'll see the gaps are in water technology or mental health support, these are areas that we have expertise in, then we will find local partners that we can train, that we can support, that we can strengthen their capacity and, and stay there. Um, we also know that governments are important. We need to build some level of partnership with the local government, uh, but it takes time. Turkey was very interesting because Turkey, for instance, they called on international search and rescue teams mm -hmm. and teams from all over the world came, but they didn't want other kind of organizations. Now we've developed good partnership with the local government. So sometimes it's not the national government, but the local mayors actually care deeply about their community and they want to look good in front of their community. So they will be our partners. So it's the short answer is it's all about partnership. Without partnership, we can't really do anything. We can't operate. Um, and then in some cases, when there isn't diplomatic relation with Israel, for example, um, we will go people and, and we will not go with the T-shirts and, you know, we'll, we'll have to be careful for security purposes. Mm -hmm. So that also happens. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Hi, Sarah Pillsbury. Um, so disasters, uh, natural disasters have a way of, of really showing uh, people on the ground how well their government is functioning, how well it has and is serving them. Uh, and so, and often brings about uh, real political change. So I was wondering, as a apolitical organization, mm -hmm. how, you, uh, how you address that? Because I, I would imagine even from the start, you're dealing with some people who, who are just brimming with anger that, yeah. that this happened to them. And uh, how are you able to en engage with those people? Or how are you able to sometimes help frame the conversation? Uh, and you know, just that's, that's set up. Well, thankfully, thank you. That's a great question. Thankfully, we're not representing the government, neither the Israeli government or any other government. So um, so in a way, when there's a lot of anger towards the government, we saw it very strongly in Turkey now. Um, people are actually interested in working with us because they see that we don't have any hidden agenda. We don't, you know, we're not biased. Uh, we're coming as guests. We're coming with a lot of cultural sensitivity. Um so, so people are actually very interested in partnering, and we're telling them we're not, you know, we're not representing the government. We're not here to oppose the government or fight them, uh, but we're not here to, to whatever, to, to say that they're doing a good job because um, that may not be the case. Mm -hmm. um, so our, you know, remaining pure humanitarian and not taking a political stand is one of our secrets for successes, mm -hmm. and it's hard especially when you're coming from Israel and as an Israeli organization, because people want to put you in this spot, in this political uh, um, sphere. Um, but I think we've succeeded. And, 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 um, and one of kind of the stamps of approval is that we're getting now a lot of funding from the UN. And people are surprised. Wow, the Israeli organization gets money from mm -hmm. the UN because there are always these UN-Israel um, 
complication. I said, and, and the truth is, we do. We, go, we get significant funding uh, from UNICEF and, and other organizations. And, um, and they're not doing it because of our Israeli identity. They're doing it because they, they think we're doing a good job. This is, by the way, decisions that are being made by the UN offices um, on the ground. Um, in the different countries in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Latin America or, or, or in the Middle East where we operate. So, um, so that's this kind of being part of the humanitarian system and being uh, a legit and a leading actor is something that we worked on for many years. Um, I, are there any other questions? I would love to hear from Haley, Adam, Pam, some of our folks who've spent a lot of time doing this kind of work um, and supporting it. If, if you have any thoughts or if anyone else has a question or thought yeah I'm Joe Pateski uh, what have you had any failures have you ever had a situation where things just really went badly wrong um, great question first of all yes <laughs> um, many failures um, on different levels and different scales um, I, I can tell you that personally I'm um, devastated by the situation in Haiti. Um, we've been there since the earthquake in 2010. We've been there for almost eight years. Uh, and then we wrapped up and we, uh, we came back um, after the recent earthquake that was in 2021. Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Um, the, the failure, first of all, for me is that we're not able to make significant impact there because of security and safety. Uh, we've di we did a big agriculture project there. We came back after and we saw it didn't continue as we were hoping. So we actually did it in three main villages. Two didn't continue, one did. And the reason that one was successful was that the local youth team actually took the ownership. So they succeeded, but in others, it didn't, it, it didn't continue after we left. So Haiti is you know, in general, is a country with so many humanitarian needs um, that because of security, because of corruption, because of many different challenges, we are not able to make significant impact. So we had to pull out from there. Um, in Greece, where we worked for six years with refugees, um, the government decided that, the Greek government decided that they don't want international organization helping refugees because they don't want the refugees to stay there. Again, mm -hmm. so we, again, I feel good about what we did there because we reached more than 120,000 refugees over six years. And uh, because most of the refugees by the time we, we left were gone, but we also had to wrap up our response, not because uh, we, we finalized our program, but because of political reasons uh, that are not connected to our Israel identity. They just didn't want any kind of support for refugees. Um, so that's, you know, another um, challenge. Um, there's a lot of uh, stories of staff members who were just not the right fit. So, you know, no, 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 no. <laughs> She's part of the family. Um, yeah. But she knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, since, since Sharon invited, um, I'm Pam. And uh, Haley was my mentor, and and certainly, um, and a, a, a drosh given by Sharon Browse years ago when the little Syrian child was washed up on the shore, uh, in the work of Hayas, uh, motivated me to do some volunteer work in um, in Greece and other countries as well, and um, I was really impressed by Hayas because 
they turned me down to work there because I didn't have the qualifications. And I was like, okay, so then where can I be qualified to work? And I, I did work in a child safe space in Greece. Anyway, my question to you is that since Hyas is has such expertise in is, is right. Okay. Oh my God! It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Sorry. Hias is a great partner. They're great. They're great too. They're great too. There's just a slip. What can I tell you? So, but since Israel has such a great reputation for providing mental health services, and you go into some of the most vulnerable spaces in the world, how do you take care of yourselves when great. you get home? Great, you. great. So, oh, so, thank you, Pam. It's, it's a great question. It's actually related to your question about failures. Um, the honest truth, Kippa is awesome. Um, the honest truth is that we learned the hard way. Um, we really did. Um, the vicarious trauma, secondary trauma of, of aid workers, is actually a very known thing um, that we experienced um, not once and not twice, and um, it forced us to get better. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, we now have now, and it took a while, we have a team that's, uh, of therapists who are only focusing on providing staff care um, and uh, in different languages, in different cult- contexts. In some places, for example, in South Sudan, where our team works with survivors of gender-based violence, and in South Sudan, just to give one unbelievable number, 67% of the women were sexually assaulted, 67%. Um, and so our team worked there and supporting uh, victims of rape and, and torture. And, um, and we are making uh, mental health for our team mandatory. Mm-hmm. They, because our notion is to say, no, we're good, we're okay. Mm-hmm. We don't need it. Um, and we, yeah, we all experience different le- And it's not just therapy, it's also forced holidays. Uh, in South Sudan, for example, or especially in the refugees' context, which is, I found to be, from a, from a mental health perspective, much more difficult than working in natural disaster, which is also terrible and difficult. But at least, you know, when there's a massive disaster, even if it's an earthquake like Turkey that killed 45,000 people, you start to rebuild. You, you, you kind of see where you're going. Mm. In the refugee context, in many cases, it's just mm. ongoing. Um, so, yeah, so we made it mandatory. We made it mandatory. They have to take uh, R&R, rest and relax, every, every eight weeks now. We pay for it. Um, and we're doing other things, too. We're doing, um, we're, we're, when we're seeing that it's, we're trying to be more proactive. And when we're seeing that a staff member or a volunteer is, is, is starting to get there, we, we learn to identify, starting to get to different levels of burnout or, or, um, or stress, um, then we, we're, we're, we're doing different kind of interventions. So it's, it's a big priority. And even in our strategic plan, like in our five years big, you know, fancy strategic plan, we have four main goals. One of them is the staff well-being. Mm. So it's, 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 it's a big, big part of us. And again, we learned the hard way. Thank you. Um, one or two last questions? Okay. I see. Thank you. 
Hi, Aaron Rosenfield. I was wondering if you've had to or had the opportunity to work with uh, perhaps your closest neighbor, Palestine, and in the Palestinian territories, and uh, what that work looked like and perhaps what the politics were associated with that. Thank you. Um, so, yes and no. The answer is yes and no. Uh, the, the, the honest is not enough. Uh, I am happy that we were able to recruit about 120 uh, Arab Israelis or Palestinian citizens of Israel as they identify themselves, uh, mainly for our work with the Syrian refugees, but not only, also with Afghan refugees and, and others. We have few of them. We have uh, the person who runs all of our public health program. His name is Ahmed. He's from East Jerusalem. He's traveling from East Jerusalem to Tel Aviv every day and, and running our program. He worked for the Palestinian Ministry of Health before. Um, Inside the Palestinian authorities and in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Gaza, we did one thing. Uh, we did one medical uh, shipment that uh, we were very quiet about um, uh, for obvious reason when there was a, a very specific uh, difficult situation. Um, and I can tell you personally, this is something that I care about deeply. And I hope we will be able to do more uh, in the near future. It's not just because of politics. It's also because of capacity. Uh, because um, I don't want to do something just to say we did. I want to be able to see if we can do something that's really humanitarian and, and long-term mm. and with long-term partnerships. And identifying the right partners for these kind of projects is possible, but it's something that we need to work on very closely. So hopefully, if we talk a year from now, I'll be able to share more. Thank you. Haley and, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, Haley, Sean, I hope quick questions and then Adam and then we'll close. Okay. I just want to say I'm a Haley Broder, former Israel and um, Yotam actually recruited me to Israel. And I know that this prize is for Yotam, not just for Israel. And we want to lift up him as the humanitarian that he is. And for me, it was such a blessing to be able to work with Yotam personally throughout this. And um, when I got called by Yotam and he said, uh, I know you wanted to go back to Greece and continue working with refugees there. I know you're Greek, you speak Greek, you got the language, go back. You can't. There was just a, a hurricane called Maria and it hit Dominica and you need to go there. And I said, Yotam, I don't even know where Dominica is. I've never heard of Dominica. I don't know where it is on a map. I think that everyone here at ICAR actually thought for the whole year I was in Dominica that I was in the, the Dominican Republic. I was not. I was in Dominica. Um, and, and when Yotam calls, you answer and you go. And I think that's the power of Yotam at the head of this organization. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was truly an honor to, to work with you over, over those two years. And I think that your leadership in this organization is what brings that humanitarian essence back to it and always keeps it at the center. Because I know that our work in the field um, is, is driven by your leadership that keeps it at its core humanitarian focused, do no harm focused, and focused on the resilience of people for the long term. Um, I know that there's a lot of questions always that I get here and everywhere about Israel aid and Israel and the connection. And 
I believe that at the center of all of it is Yotam's strong leadership from a humanitarian person-centered perspective. Because if you see Yotam in the field or you see the Israeli team in the field, you know that the work that is happening is one-on-one, human-centered, mm. focused on lifting up survivors of disasters, man-made or uh, natural, and making sure that they have the resilience and support that they needed to thrive in the world post-emergency. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Haley. And Haley, thank you. And just remind me to bring my mother next time when you're talking. <laughs> oh my God, this is like, well, uh, it's recorded. Oh, amazing. I wow. just, I, I just, your time. I, I th- I'm no, I'm, I'm beyond, I'm beyond, uh, like, uh, I'm very moved. Very, like, yeah. This is, I want, I want to just point out the ripple effect here because you're doing this profound work. You're supporting, um, you're supporting people like Haley who are doing this work and our whole community has been tracking Haley over the last several years and watching her come and go and come and go and praying for her and, uh, you know, and trying to support um, the work. And so it really, there's a very powerful ripple effect that's happening here that you, uh, I hope are getting a little bit of a taste of. And Haley, may you continue to be blessed to do this incredible yeah, work um, with safety, with love, with passion. We're so proud of you and grateful for you. Um, okay, so Sean and Adam, and then we'll wrap. Thanks, uh, Sean Landris. Um, I, I'm thinking back to the origins of Israel, and I'm thinking about Ukraine. Um, some folks know that, that I've been involved in a, vol- in, a, in a very loose but effective volunteer network over the last year, and we talked about it earlier. Um, Israel, AJWS, that notion of the Jewish responsibility beyond the Jewish community, right? There was this moment that we were very, um, that, that, that I think the conversation was about Jews helping others and a very powerful conversation that many of us at Ikar find close to our hearts. Um, and Ukraine and to a certain, Ukraine especially and Turkey to a certain degree, I think, um, has brought Israel and other organizations into a Jewish conversation, um, which, speaking from my network work, has sometimes been really frustrating. Not you guys, but like the number of people are like, are those people Jewish when we're doing case mm-hmm. management? Mm-hmm. And having to say, we don't ask that question. We want to help everybody. Mm-hmm. Thinking of your vision moving forward and the fact that even today I still hear mostly about Israel aid through Jewish networks rather than global ones, what opportunities are there over the next few years to bring the Israel aid message into the Jewish community, our sense of global responsibility? Maybe more people are listening now because they've seen the work. And also to expand that conversation more broadly because truly, um, as someone who's worked with a number of these organizations over the last year, Israel is full stop extraordinary. It is paradigm shifting, boundary breaking, the speed at which they get into places and the way in which they are working is just transforming whatever landscape they enter. And I want to see more of that. And I also want to see more of us in the Jewish community going beyond im enanili mili, if I'm not, you know, for myself, who am, who am I for, to the rest of, you know, what Hillel had to say. So powerful what you said. Thank you. Um, I'll give an example um, of what we're trying to do. And, and there's so much more that we need to do on that. But um, there's a group called the Jewish Funders Network. Um, it's... Um, uh, they do a conference once a year, 
um, where a lot of representatives from different uh, philanthropies and foundations, et cetera, et cetera. And last year, uh, it was in March in Palm Beach, and a um, big topic was Ukraine. And I was invited on a panel with the uh, head of the CEO of JDC and the CEO of the Jewish Agency, both incredible organizations uh, in their capacity. Thankfully, they let me speak first, <laughs> which is very nice of them. And, um, and I said, listen, um, 80 years ago, if you were a Jewish refugee in Ukraine, you are at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. You are likely to be slaughtered by the Nazis or by the local collaborators. And today, 80 years later, if you're a Jewish refugee in Ukraine, you will get the incredible support of JDC or the Jewish Agency or Chabad or who, like m many other organizations. Um, there's this crazy story in Ukraine that when people were running away right, uh, right after the, the invasion, the Jewish refugees were told to put the letters IL on their clothes or on their cars because mm. they'd be pulled out of the line. The line was like miles, miles long and, and it was freezing cold and late February and, and people were pulled out because they're Jewish, they were prioritized. Um, and I said, because of that, our work to support non-Jews and the most vulnerable is even more important than ever. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it really resonated um, because then after we saw that, uh, for example, the Jewish federations of North America, they now open a non-sectarian fund, which they never did before. Um, and, and we're seeing how the Jewish establishment here and also in Israel, in Israel, it was very difficult for us to convince people to support non-Jews. Um, and, um, and Ukraine was... A positive game changer finally saw how again these tech people from Tel Aviv, which I'm stigmatizing here, but uh, but there's a lot of resources there as we all know, and um, and they stepped up. They stepped up. So again, maybe because I'm optimistic by nature, but I do see how there's there's a positive trend around it. But we definitely need to speak out this message, you know, as loud as possible. I think Israel, because the organization is called Israel, we have a unique position mm -hmm. to convince, I don't know if convince is the right way, but to, to advocate for these, for non-Jewish people, mm -hmm. um, maybe more than other organizations, because we're not uh, necessarily, we will be put in this, in this very far left, uh, you know, category that some people will put other organizations that are doing great work. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we have a role to play also on that note on building these bridges and, 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 and spreading this message of supporting everyone. Thank you. Um, Adam, you're gonna have the last question. All right. So I'm, it better I'm, be good. I'm no not even gonna ask a question. I'm just gonna make a comment. I wanna say two things publicly and one thing privately, but to everybody. <laughs> so as, as somebody who's worked in the humanitarian space for the last decade as chairman of Team Rubicon, I first wanna say Mazaltov on the incredible growth and impact you have had I know how hard it is to do that, and you have done an incredible job over the last many years. Number two, I wanna say thank you for your incredible partnership with Team Rubicon and all the great work we have done together around the world. Uh, we deployed but, together, I think, to more than 12 different disasters with Team Rubicon team. 
they send about 2,000 people, we send 20 people, and it works perfectly because we make a lot of noise. Um, well, and that's, that's why I want to say the third thing privately, which is I know sometimes you look at Team Rubicon as the big brother. We've, we've gotten very big, 150,000 volunteers around the world and are deploying all over the place. But what you don't know is that privately, when we're with the exec team, we always talk about you and how great you've done and how we want to be more like you. So congratulations. Wow. It's a lot to take. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Thank you, you're the best partner. Um, Yo, Tom, I want to just bless you um, with continued strength and body and spirit. Um, I bless you both as an Abba, um, as a as a CEO, as a game changer, paradigm shifter, boundary breaker out in the field, um, as an Israeli, as a Jew, um, may you continue to find uh, and to lead with your moral clarity, with your heart. Um, may you continue to put people first and may, may you be blessed with health and with strength, um, body and spirit in the days ahead. You always have a home here, Eddie Carr, so I hope thank we'll you. see you again soon. And thank you, Paulette. Thank you. This is, this is uh, can I just say one more word about that, Sharon? Because, I, I don't know, I feel a very special energy in this room. Um, a very special person next to me also. Um, and, and it really, um, yeah, it really gives me the energy um, to continue this work. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to Andrew and Ellen um, and to Stephen and Claudine. Uh, Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.